text from Genesis chapter 37 is our meditation for today, dear fellow redeemed. Since I know that you are all perfect parents, this has never happened to you. You have more than one child. You love one more than the other. I know that's never happened to you, right? Every one of your children is equally adored at all times, right? No matter what they do, how they act, no matter how cranky in the morning or how precious at night, you love them all the same all the time. And you're already chuckling, aren't you? Because it's virtually impossible. It's impossible because it's natural to, <coughs> excuse me, to show favoritism. It's natural to look out at a group of things and like something more than the other. We all know who Pastor Tim's favorite baseball team is, right? You said the Red Sox? Sir, you go talk to him later. <laughs> we know that because he expresses that. Now, there are a variety of baseball teams he could like, but he has his favorite. It's the Mets, yes, sir. The reality is, however, we can express that with worldly things, but it comes closer to our hearts when it's our own flesh and blood. So imagine Jacob's predicament. Because Jacob had 12 sons and a daughter. That's a lot of children. That's a lot of wrestling and a lot of an attempt not to show favoritism. And yet, we know that Jacob really struggled with that reality. We've heard the Sunday school stories. We know about Joseph in the multicolored, multi-colored coat. We know about other things later on in Jacob's life and Joseph's life. And the account that we have before us in Genesis 37 gives us that introduction. It lays the foundation for all of Joseph's life. And it starts in betrayal. Now, I said at the beginning of the worship service, hold your understanding of the word betrayal. Because ordinarily, betrayal thinks about something that is, is grand and visible. For example, a spy who then defects from his country is said to have betrayed his country. And you start talking with words of treason and death. And yet, betrayal can be something as simple as simply not acting or behaving in the way you are supposed to. In other words, recognizing your lot in life, what God has given you, and acting accordingly. That's the betrayal that shows up in this text over and over again. 
And it's the same betrayal that affected Jesus. Because if you really want to get down to it, the story of Joseph, which starts in 37 of Genesis, but goes all the way to chapter 50. In fact, the most consecutive chapters in Genesis have to deal with Joseph. Many scholars have recognized that this Joseph is a foreshadowing of Jesus. And when you look at Joseph's life, you can see that. A man who was called to serve in some unique scenarios. But all that is sculpted by the beginning of Joseph's life. In the beginning of Joseph's life, there was betrayal. There was betrayal of his father's love, and there was betrayal of his own actions. And when you put those two together, you would almost have to beg the question, it's no wonder that Joseph got what he got here on earth. Our story with Joseph begins when he is 17 years old. Now, we know that Joseph was born to Jacob's favorite wife. It was the wife that Jacob had worked seven years for way back in the beginning when Jacob had to wrestle with his father's own favoritism. You see, in those times, there wasn't a whole lot of guesswork with children. Let me explain. The firstborn pretty much ruled everything. The firstborn was the one who got the sole inheritance and need to carry on the family's name. The firstborn, who was the one who got the blessings from the father, both spoken and sometimes material. It was the firstborn that everyone else in the family looked to when the father was getting old or when the father was unable to work. There wasn't much of a question. And so when Jacob, and Re- or sorry, when Isaac, Jacob's father, and Rebekah, his wife, had twins, it was natural that the firstborn, even if it were for just by a couple of minutes, the firstborn would carry everything. And that firstborn was Esau. And unfortunately, favoritism ran deep in those roots because the Bible tells us that Isaac, the father, loved Esau, and Rebekah, the mother, loved Jacob. And even though they were born only minutes apart, they were twins. Esau was the one who should have received the blessing. But God decided to mix it up a little bit to show that culture doesn't always carry the day. And God said publicly, Jacob is the one who received the blessing. But because Rebekah struggled to trust and Jacob struggled to believe, they created some cockamamie event in order to receive the blessing, deceiving their father, causing Jacob to run away from his home, from his family. And now Jacob is back in the land. His 12 children, male, and his one daughter are with him. His two wives and their concubines are with him. 
And everything is following that same bad cycle because Jacob now has his favorite son. And when it's only twins, okay. But when it's one of 12, well, that's just a problem. In verse 2, Moses writes for us in Genesis, Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. You can already see it, can't you? Youngest son, barely a teenager, and what is he asked to do? He's asked to snitch. He's asked to be a tattletale. He's asked to go out where his older brothers are all working and check up on them. Now why would a dad ask the youngest one to do that? Unfortunately, it was because Jacob held Joseph in much higher esteem than he ought to have. Not saying he shouldn't have loved them, him, but he shouldn't have loved them to that point where it was so clearly and obviously more than everybody else. And, and the next section of the text tells us how Jacob showed that love. He, he treated this youngest son of his at this time with such a great love that he doted on him. He dressed him in the finest linen. He probably kept him away from the hard work that all the other brothers had to do. And then on top of it, he creates a mole. Pardon the expression. He sends his youngest son out and to his brothers say, okay, I want you to keep your eyes open. I want you to make sure that the rest of my children are doing what they are supposed to be doing. And then you come back and tell me. Now what should the youngest son have done? He can't refuse what dad is asking him to do. But was there really that much bad going on that he had to give a bad report? I think that Joseph is already showing a little bit of his immaturity and his own betrayal. I'll come back to that in a second. Because Joseph shows his own betrayal of his position in the next section of scriptures. Joseph has a dream. And in that dream, something unusual happens. But according to dreams, uh, well, trust me, I've had weirder dreams than what Joseph had. But there's one difference. I didn't wake up the next morning and start to blab that dream around everybody. In fact, the weirder the dream, the more I keep it to myself, right? I don't need people thinking, boy, that Pastor Tim, he's lost his marbles. Why would he dream so and such and so? But notice what Joseph does. Joseph, because of his own mind's exalted position, takes this dream, which clearly has only one interpretation, and even Joseph knows that interpretation right now. And he goes and he shares that dream. It's really a simple dream. Joseph and his brothers are all in the field harvesting. And since they didn't have diesel tractors, large combines, and a hay baler, they're doing it all by hand. And as was the custom of the day, they cut down all the sheaves of wheat, 
and then they bundle them together, usually about in the width of their own hands. They pick it up from the ground, they grab it like this, and then someone else comes around and ties a little rope around it. And then they put the sheaves up because there's one purpose, and I'm teaching you ag this morning, so there'll be a test later. The purpose is for the wheat to dry. See, when it's recently harvested, not all of the sap has gone out of the heads yet. And if you take those heads and grind them up, they're going to be mushy and all the protein is going to be lost. So the grain has to dry. All the fluid has to kind of go to the bottom, and then the stalks get very, very brittle. It's not uncommon to see a freshly cut field where the really recent stalks are standing straight up, but the ones that are two or three days old, they're falling over. And yet in the dream, Joseph clearly says that my stock was standing in the middle and all y'all's stocks were bowing down to me. I'm sorry, but I'm the oldest of six children. And if my younger brother, who's 10 years younger than I have, would have told me a dream like that, I think I probably would have reacted the exact same way that his brothers did. So what are you saying, little one? Are you saying that you who are barely a teenager is someday going to rule over all of us? Are you saying that you're more important than me? I ask two questions. Number one, why did Joseph share the dream? And number two, could Joseph have expected the answers? Because I think that in the answer to those two questions, we find the first root of betrayal. And that betrayal simply is the fact that Joseph didn't fully grasp and act out the role he had been given. And instead, he thought himself more important. In fact, later on, we have a very another dream. And that dream goes even a step further, because now instead of having just sheaves, we have the sun and moon and the stars. And all of them are bowing down to the one star, Joseph. And you can see right away, sun and moon, that's got to be mom and dad to all the other brothers. So now Joseph has taken even one step further. My friends, if I would have had the first dream and had the reaction that I would have had, I would have kept the second dream myself. But not Joseph. He felt very clearly the need to share that dream. And to share it, I first and foremost believe, because he was betraying his role. He was not the firstborn. Yes, he was the most loved by his father, but he should have scaled that back. And instead, he grew into that. He betrayed his role. Does that sound familiar, friends? That's too bad because the truth is we've always all betrayed our role. 
There are times when we act more important than what we truly are and try to make decisions and influence people and things beyond that which we should. And there are other times when we take a back seat, when we're called to lead and need to lead, we, we surrender, we back up, we walk, we say, no, no, that's not me. And we do it in such a way that I call it false humility. In other words, we're not carrying out the role that God has placed us in. You know, I asked the children, what do you do when you grow up? I don't need to ask you. You know what you're doing. You're all grown up. Are you carrying out that role exactly as God designed it? To be the best parent, father, mother. To be the best employer or employee. To be the best worker or manager. To be the best in which that which God has put you. Or are you constantly looking and inspiring, aspiring to be something else that you're not? Now, I'm not trying to take away the desire to advance oneself. And I'm not trying to take away that desire to exceed and carry out fully the gifts that God has given you. But the way in which you do it, it would be akin to what Joseph did. Walk into your job tomorrow, look at your boss straight in the eyes and said, I had a dream last night. And that dream was, you're gone and I'm taking your place. And by the way, I've got everything all figured out and it's all going to be better. How long do you think you'd last? Maybe you have a very nice boss. But in a certain sense, that's exactly what Joseph did. He betrayed his role by trying to become something else. And God caused a punishment to come for that. The rest of chapter 37 tells us that the brothers who were so incensed, so angry, some of them even driven to kill him, finally sold him off and sent him down to Egypt. And for the next 35 years, the brothers know nothing of Joseph. And that's because Joseph has to go through a cycle of repentance and living to understand that he needs to play out the role that God has given him. And in order to wrap this all up for Lent, you and I right now can thank God that the perfect son did play out the role that God had given him because he went to the cross. Think about it for a minute. The perfect Son of God. Equal to God in everything. Eternal, almighty, all-knowing. And yet the Father said, Son, I need you to become flesh. I need you to take on that mortal nature. I need you to walk in the footsteps of every one of those betrayers. And I need you to do it perfectly. And Jesus was tempted in that. 
Go back to the first Sunday of Lent. Here we discuss the, the, the curse that came upon us because of Adam and Eve's deception and sin. And the gospel reading for that day was the perfect Son of God not falling into sin, even though he was tempted. And even though Jesus was betrayed at every moment, think about it for a minute, the gospel reading for today, Jesus says, I'm going to go to the cross, and I'm going to die on the cross. And what's the very next thing that Matthew records for us? Two disciples come and say, okay, Lord, in light of all that, hey, can I be on your right and your left? I want the position of power. And Jesus has to say, oh, what'd you give me to work with? They betrayed their positions. They didn't live in the role that God had given them, even as the perfect Son of God was living in His role. Because only when the perfect Son of God lives in His role can we find and have the forgiveness of sins for our betrayal. The fact that we have betrayed our faith on a daily basis the fact that we have betrayed our position in life as a husband, as a wife, as a leader, as an employee on a daily basis. Just like we sang a couple of minutes ago, we don't even deserve to lift our eyes to God. And yet because he sent his son to be betrayed for us, to assume, take on, and carry all of our betrayals, he is the true intervention. He took every time that you and I moved outside of what God has made us. And he took it upon himself and he went to that cross. And he didn't move his focus. He didn't change his glance. He constantly kept the cross in front of him. And even as he was betrayed by one of his own in a garden, and even as he was betrayed by another one of his own in a courtyard, and even as he was betrayed by all of his own who turned their back on him, as he hung on that cross, he himself never failed. He kept his role perfectly so that you and I might receive that wonderful, clear forgiveness of sins. And you know what's unique? God the Father doesn't play any favorites. Unlike Jacob, unlike Isaac, and unlike others, including me, who have a time, like to play favorites, God the Father loves us all. And when he sent his son... It was so that all of us, regardless of what we have done, regardless of who we think we are or who we want to be, in faith, following Jesus, there's the forgiveness of sins. 
because for each time we've betrayed, he did not. And for each time in the future when we will betray again, and we will, all we have is that cross, that perfect life, and that glorious resurrection on which to stand firmly, to believe that the forgiveness of sins is ours because he never betrayed us. You probably know the end of the story. Joseph is in Egypt for a single purpose. He himself says, I now know why all this happened so I could serve in this way. But think of all the years it took him to get to that point and all the betrayals. My friends, someday you and I are going to stand in front of our Lord at the gates of heaven and we're going to look up and we're going to say, thank you, Lord, that you loved us even because we've betrayed you, but you've never betrayed us. Amen.